If you want to go ahead and turn in your Bibles, we'll be in two texts today. The first one is Acts chapter 16. Uh, beginning in verse 6. Acts chapter 16, beginning in verse 6. And before I start reading that, uh, why don't I pray for us? Father, we're grateful for the gracious gift of your word. Um, it's something that if you had not done it, we uh, we wouldn't have it. And... Uh, you have given it to us to encourage us, to strengthen us, to challenge us as we try to understand what it means for us today with the help of your spirit. Uh, please accomplish that for us this morning. Um, Lord, may just a little bit of truth stick with us today, stick with, with me today, and make a difference in our lives um, in, in meaningful and powerful and practical ways. Uh, we thank you that you are here with us this morning, and I pray that you would um, feel welcome here as we as we seek to discover what your will is for our lives and for this church. In Jesus' name, amen. So Acts chapter 16. So first of all, they is Timothy, Paul, and Silas, okay? So they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been prevented by the Holy Spirit from speaking the message in the province of Asia. When they came to Messiah, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them to do this. So they passed through Messiah and went down to Troas. A vision appeared to Paul during the night. A Macedonian man was standing there, urging him, Come over to Macedonia and help us. After Paul saw the vision, we attempted immediately to go over to Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to proclaim the good news to them. Verse 11, We put out to sea from Troas and sailed a straight course to Samothrace, the next day to Neapolis. And from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia, a Roman colony. We stayed in this city for some days. On the Sabbath day, we went outside the city gate to the side of the river, where we thought there would be a place of prayer. And we sat down and began to speak to the women who had assembled there. A woman named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth from the city of Thyatira, a God-fearing woman, listened to us. The Lord opened her heart to respond to what Paul was saying. After she and her household were baptized, she urged us, If you consider me to be a believer in the Lord, come and stay in my house. And she persuaded us. Now as we were going to the place of prayer, a slave girl met us who had a spirit that enabled her to foretell the future by supernatural means. She brought her owners a great profit by fortune-telling. She followed behind Paul and us and kept crying out, 
These men are servants of the Most High God who are proclaiming to you the way of salvation. She continued to do this for many days. But Paul became greatly annoyed and turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out of her at once. But when her owners saw that their hope of profit was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the authorities. When they had brought them before the magistrates, they said, These men are throwing our city into confusion. They are Jews, <clears throat> excuse me, they are Jews and are advocating customs that are not lawful for us to accept or practice, since we are Romans. The crowd joined the attack against them, and the magistrates tore the clothes off Paul and Silas and ordered them to be beaten with rods. After they had been beaten, after they had beaten them se severely, they threw them into prison and commanded the jailer to guard them securely. Receiving such orders, he threw them in the inner cell and fastened their feet in the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the rest of the prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly, a great earthquake occurred. I always thought it would be cool if when I said that, we had a little earthquake. <laughs> it didn't happen. <laughs> That's okay. Uh, suddenly a great earthquake occurred so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. Immediately all the doors flew open and the bonds of all the prisoners came loose. When the jailer woke up and saw the doors of the prison standing open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself because he assumed the prisoners had escaped. But Paul called out loudly, do not harm yourself for we are all here. Calling for lights, the jailer rushed in and fell down, trembling at the feet of Paul and Silas. Then he brought them outside and asked, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? They replied, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him, along with all those who were in his house. At that hour of the night, he took them and washed their wounds. Then he and all his family were baptized right away. The jailer brought them into his house and set food before them, and he rejoiced greatly that he had come to believe in God, together with his entire household. At daybreak, the magistrates sent their police officers, saying, Release those men. The jailer reported these words to Paul, saying, The magistrates have sent orders to release you, so come out now and go in peace. But Paul said to the police officers, they had beaten us in public without a proper trial, even though we are Roman citizens, and they threw us into prison. And now they want to send us away secretly? Absolutely not. They themselves must come and escort us out. The police officers reported these words to the magistrates. They were frightened when they heard Paul and Silas were Roman citizens and came and apologized to them. After they brought them out, they asked them repeatedly to leave the city. When they came out of the prison, they entered Lydia's house, and when they saw the brothers, they encouraged them and then departed. Our second text this morning is in Philippians chapter 1. So now if you turn to Philippians chapter 1, only two verses. If you're in Acts and you keep flipping towards the end, you'll... After Romans and 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, Galatians, and Ephesians, you'll find the little book of Philippians. A wonderful little book, by the way. Um, it's quite quotable. 
for such a small book, there's so many verses in Philippians that many of us know. Uh, unfortunately, that leads to the misuse of those verses. Things like, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Um, do not fear, but in everything, you know, pray and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Um, a lot of well, well-known, recognizable passages in Philippians, but they don't always mean what we think they mean. Philippians chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. From Paul and Timothy, slaves of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, with the overseers and deacons, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Church planting is big business. I couldn't find an exact number, but it is a multi-million dollar industry. If you want to plant a church today, you can actually purchase what's called a church in a box. It includes everything you need to plant a church. There are market research groups and consulting firms that exist solely for the purpose of selling their product to church planters. I ran across this quotation today and realized like I'd heard this before and was so glad that I came across it again because in some ways it's so true. And I don't think we know who uh, or where this comes from, but it says this, the gospel came to the Greeks and the Greeks turned it into a philosophy. The gospel came to the Romans, and the Romans turned it into a system. The gospel came to the Europeans, and the Europeans turned it into a culture. The gospel came to America, and the Americans turned it into a business. Amber and I participated in a church plant while I was in seminary a long, long time ago. Uh, 2004, I think is when we started. And the church plant lasted until 2007, somewhere in there. Uh, it was a good church, and its good pastor had a good vision for the kind of good ministry he wanted to do and the kind of church he wanted to plant. But the church died. It died for a lot of reasons, I suppose. Successful businessmen do not always make good or godly elders. An associate pastor who has an affair gives many who were just hanging on by a thread the opportunity to leave quietly in the chaos. But when I look back at it, it was a church planted in an area that didn't need another church, that had too many already. So many, in fact, that choosing a church carried about as much commitment as choosing where to eat lunch after church. It's good and fine and maybe satisfies a particular momentary craving, but we'll probably go somewhere else next week. Before this church closed its doors, I participated in a meeting with the regional director of our denomination's church planting ministry. He was kind of a big deal, I was told. 
I don't enjoy meetings for the most part. Especially not this one. One of our church members, Rick, worked for Omni Hotels and arranged for us to have this meeting at the presidential suite in a hotel in downtown Dallas. Literally, presidents had stayed in this place. There were pictures on the wall and autographs and things like that. As we sat around a table that I'm sure was worth at least a semester's worth of seminary tuition, certain types of words and phrases began to stand out to me, and I began to list them. Essentially, we were told that we needed to grow this church like we would grow a business. Make it prettier, fancier. On special occasions like Easter, because Easter was upcoming, uh, we should hire professional musicians. We need to spend some money to make the audience's experience of our service second to none. All of these words and phrases I was writing down, and I observed later that these could have been from any business meeting that occurs probably thousands of times every day across America. I still don't know if I would say that it was wrong. What I do know is that if I had 10 minutes to share that story with the Apostle Paul, I think he would be at least confused and probably concerned. You see, the church that Paul planted was neither designed nor planned by a committee of men. We just read in Acts 16 of Paul's planting of the church in Philippi. We have Paul's letter to this church, to the saints in Philippi, because God did this work. The church in Philippi should never have happened. No one planned to go there. Once they got there, it seemed that no one listened, at least no one who really mattered if you wanted to plant a thriving church. Paul and his friends go down by the river to pray where they meet some women. At least one of them believes Paul's message, the gospel, that Jesus is Lord. She happens to be a wealthy merchant, which comes in handy when the church needs a place to meet. But still, she is a Gentile woman. And in the first century, if not in the 21st century, this is not a good strategic start to things. But her household, we're told, also believes and everyone is baptized. So we start with a woman, her family, and her slaves. The second story of the genesis of the church in Philippi is of a demon-possessed, fortune-telling slave girl. Paul casts the demon out of her, but we're not told if she believes. Presumably she does and joins this home church. Her exorcism means that she no longer makes money for her masters by telling fortunes. So they have Paul and Silas arrested. arrested. And this leads to the next family, a jailer and his household. Now today, being a warden in a prison in America is generally a respected position. Maybe not one that too many of us want, but nonetheless it's respected and the salary can be, you know, more than adequate. But being a jailer in a first century Roman colony was quite a different experience. According to historians, the jailer was probably a slave, albeit one with some amount of freedom, because no free man would have chosen to be a jailer. Why? Well, remember what happens when he thinks his prisoners had escaped. Escaping prisoners means death for the jailer. He's preparing to kill himself. This is not a job anybody would choose to have. 
But he believes and his whole household. And these stories mark the beginning of the church in Philippi. There's a church just a few miles south of my, of my hometown. I've driven past it probably hundreds, if not thousands of times. Um, my family moved there in 1981 and still lives there today. In fact, we visited over Christmas and we drove by this church at least four times. It's a small Baptist church and it has a marquee out by the road that recognizes new members. If it was like the Baptist church that I went to about 10 miles away, you could become a member simply by walking forward during the altar call after any service. You fill out a card where you check off a box indicating your desire to become a member, and that's about it. No classes, no investigation, no genetic testing or profiling. I always thought that this small white church should put on their sign, again, this was like in the 90s. Welcome, new member, Troy Aikman. Uh, for those of you who don't know, Troy Aikman was a three-time Super Bowl winning quarterback for the Dallas Cowboys in the early to mid-90s. I always thought if they did that, their attendance would double in a week. But imagine that this church in Philippi, meeting at Lydia's home, has a similar marquee, and it says something like, unfortunately, we don't have a lot of names, so bear with me. Welcome, new members, Lydia and her slaves. Formerly demon-possessed, fortune-telling slave girl, and the jailer and his slaves. Again, this is a culture that took its social structure seriously, and not even curiosity would cause any respected, educated, successful, or influential citizens to step into that shameful gathering of people. But the church grows because God does the work. And he does the work through the ministers whom he has gifted to carry out his will in particular ways. Philippi was not part of Paul's plan, but the Holy Spirit had another plan. And because of this plan, we now have this wonderful letter by which I pray that all of us are encouraged and challenged. Now let's take a look closely at the first two verses of Philippians 1. The authors of this letter are Paul and Timothy, although Timothy pretty much disappears and Paul speaks in the first person. Paul is a Jew with blameless credentials, as he will remind us in chapter 3, and as he also reminded us in Galatians. So faithful was he that he was willing to use violence against this new Christian movement to preserve the purity of Israel. Why? Well, Christians proclaimed Jesus as Lord, a title, a name, that every Jew knew was reserved for God alone. Paul was zealous in this work until the risen and ascended Jesus revealed himself to Paul on the road to Damascus. He is later called to preach the gospel to the Gentiles. Here's what we know about Timothy. Timothy was a companion of Paul who was with him when he went to Philippi and started the church there. Timothy's mother was Jewish, but his father was Greek. And we know that his mother and his grandmother both exhibited exemplary faith. So what's the point of this background biographical information? I believe it's important to notice that neither Paul nor Timothy would have been on anyone's top ten list to spread the gospel and plant churches among the Gentiles. Paul was greeted early on with a large dose of skepticism from those who knew of his prior persecution of the church. Timothy had a mixed heritage, and apparently, as we read in First and Second Timothy, 
struggled with his confidence in God's calling on his life. Yet the planting and growing of the church is a work of God carried out by individuals who have been given gifts. These gifts, Paul tells us elsewhere, are given according to God's will. We all have some, none have all, so we need each other. Now notice closely that Paul and Timothy refer to themselves as slaves of Christ Jesus. This statement would have been quite provocative for at least two reasons. First of all, the word slave carried with it in the first century about the same kind of history and baggage as it does in the 21st century. Which is why all but two major translations use the term servants instead of slaves. The New King James and the New American Standard get a little closer with the term bondservant, but most of us don't really know what a bondservant was. But when Paul says slave, he means slave. He means that his will is submitted to that of his master, his Lord. He means that he no longer conducts his life according to his own interests, but instead conducts his life according to the interests of the one who called him. Now, Paul doesn't always address himself as a slave to his audience. When a church needs to get their doctrine or their behavior right, or when a church is questioning Paul's credentials and authority, He calls himself an apostle. But it seems that when the issue in the church is unity and harmony and division, Paul prefers the term slave because it models the humility that his audience needs to follow. Next, Paul calls the Philippian believers, his audience, saints. Outside of Paul's use of this term, only the book of Revelation uses this, this, uh, this word frequently. And maybe it's obvious, but Paul doesn't use this term in reference to Christians who have achieved some kind of special status. These saints are not super Christians. Paul calls the believers in Corinth saints. Even though he says that the kind of sin that's going on the church is even shameful to the pagans. The word saints unifies us. The Philippian church was clearly not uniform. It starts with a wealthy merchant and slaves. It seems clear that this church was, as were all the ones that Paul addresses, composed of men and women, slave and free, Jew and Gentile. We can extend that to diversity in wealth, age, politics, and personality. But by calling them saints, Paul is calling them to the foundation of their unity. They have all been called by God and set apart, like Paul has, for accomplishing his will as his ambassadors. To address believers by really anything else divides. But as being saints... We are one. In verse 2, Paul uses two terms with which we are so familiar, maybe, that a temptation is present to skip right over them and move on to what we consider really important, the body of this letter. I like introductions to Paul's letters. I think they're sort of like the genealogies and the Gospels. People tend to skip right by them. I wouldn't begin to uh, preach a genealogy. 
not tomorrow anyway. But uh, uh, I love taking the stuff that we tend to just skip over and see what's there. But we're not going to succumb to that temptation. Paul opens almost all of his letters with a reference to grace and peace from the Lord Jesus Christ. This might make us think that it was just a part of how letters were written. For example, I recently wrote a letter to the Nebraska Department of Revenue. Do you remember the lady's name? Was it Becky? Ah, I thought it was Becky. Either way. I addressed this letter with Dear Becky. Becky did not give me her last name over the phone, which is probably a good idea for tax collectors. So while I addressed her as Dear, I doubt that she, upon receiving my letter, went around to her friends and colleagues and posted on her Facebook that some stranger from Alaska had called her dear. I don't think it made her day, and I don't think it made her creeped out. It's just what we do. By the way, I closed the letter with sincerely, not love, Curtis. The ancient world had its own letter-writing conventions, and Paul follows them, almost. And it's where he deviates from the norm that we can see Paul's focus and Paul's passion for the church revealed. The standard practice was to open the letter with greetings, but Paul does so with grace. They're quite different words in English other than starting with the same letter, but in Greek, they are quite similar. Only the endings are different by just a couple of letters. You see, Paul has steeped all that he does in Jesus for so long and so much in his experience of the risen Christ and the Holy Spirit that even his letter writing has been affected. Maybe we've tried to imitate this in various ways. Uh, we're not letter writers like the ancients were and probably haven't been since long distance phone calls became affordable. In the 90s, when everyone had an answering machine, well, at least my family had one in the 90s. Everyone else probably had it before that. We were always about a decade behind. It became almost a contest among my circle of Christian friends to put some kind of distinctly Christian message on your answering machine. The one I remember the most was my youth pastors. It said something like, Hi, this is Dave. I can't come to the phone right now, but leave a message and I'll get back to you. Jesus wept, is your God man enough to cry? But Paul's not creating some sort of artificial greeting. His life has been so impacted by grace and the consequent peace and reconciliation that he can't not talk about it. Now let's look at grace. If you spent much time in church, you've probably heard that grace is unmerited, Favor, or does anyone know the acronym? God's riches at Christ's expense. G R A C E. Both of those are true, I suppose, but seem to be only part of the grace story. What's clear from the New Testament is that grace, while it is it is indeed free and unmerited, 
when given and received, changes the relationship between the giver and the receiver. And the, and the receiver. Have you ever given a gift to someone who has offended you? Have you ever experienced the change in relationship this causes? God's grace in Christ does this every time. And the change that results is something that Paul calls peace. Does he mean peace with God or peace with each other? I'm not sure there's a difference. For Paul, the experience of God's grace reconciles us to God and to each other. The effects and the work of grace are always in two directions, vertical and horizontal. The final phrase we need to look at is the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord is not merely a title, and Christ is not Jesus' last name. In a world where refusing to confess that Caesar is Lord could and did cost people their lives. So to confess that Jesus is Lord meant that you could be killed. You were considered treasonous. The Romans were not fans. Neither were the Jews. To confess Jesus as Lord was blasphemy to the Jews. Paul's language is divisive here, but necessarily so. To confess Jesus as the Christ was similarly divisive. Essentially, Paul is claiming that Jesus is king. In fact, every time you read Jesus Christ or Christ Jesus, you should think King Jesus. What's the point of all this? If we understand what Paul means by slave, saint, grace, peace, and that Jesus is both Lord and King, then we are well on our way to understanding the foundation for the unity that Paul wants the church in Philippi to experience. You see, our unity can never be found in our opinions about things, church things or secular things. For example, we can disagree about how and how often to have the Lord's Supper. We can disagree about when and how to baptize. We can disagree about a lot of things, but we are united in our experience of the grace of God in Christ. Now what? What does this text mean for us today, tomorrow, at home, at work, at church? I see two significant areas in which we can apply this text to our lives. The first comes from the very existence of the church in Philippi, and the second comes from Paul's example in these two verses. First, we must make sure that this church, or if you're visiting whatever church you attend on a regular basis, we must make sure that the church exists because God has done the work. I'm sure those of you who have been here for many years could tell stories of how God has intervened and accomplished things here that couldn't be explained any other way. I'm also certain that anyone who's been in any church or churches for many years could tell stories of how personal agendas or attempts at the latest and greatest methods and practices have caused damage and division. At the end of the day, if someone asks you how this church did what it did, 
it should be quite difficult to explain from a human perspective. Uh, probably my sophomore year in college, the president of our university came to talk, to spend an evening with the guys on my floor. There are maybe like 30 of us or so gathered in a room about this size. And I asked him a question about vision. And by vision, I just meant like goals. But vision sounds more, you know, spiritual. Um, I said, Dr. Stoll, how do you, how do you deal with vision? Being like a 20-year-old Bible college student, like, you know, you want to be famous, right? You want to be like the next whomever. And that's really what I meant. <laughs> How do you become famous? But uh, I knew enough not to ask it that way. Uh, his answer was something like this. Do something so that in the end, the only possible person who could get the glory is God. And I think that should be your goal for this church or whatever church is let's accomplish something that in the end is not, not about, oh, we, we adopted this program. We adopted this system. We hired this guy or, or this, uh, you know, um, this approach, all of those things may be fine and good, but in the end do something that you can only blame God for do something that you can only give God the credit for. Second, Paul models for us how unity is maintained in the midst of diversity. How does a group of Jesus followers get along? It's a good question. Paul models for us an essential for unity in the church. And not just this church, but I think even between churches. How do we work together in spite of our differences? Our approach to others must be like Paul's, our approach must be as slaves to saints. You see what Paul does there in his greeting? He calls himself a slave, but he refers to his church as saints. Some want to make this a model only for leadership in the church, but Paul will later reveal that he's only imitating Jesus and encourages us to imitate him and Jesus. So I think this applies to all of us. Imagine what kind of change this would generate in circumstances where relationships have been altered or ended, where Christians have and remain divided over issues that have absolutely nothing to do with the work that God's church, that God intends for his church to do. What if in every conversation with every person, in email, or on social media, what if they were all patterned as being from a slave to a saint? Is Paul a saint? Yes. Are the Philippian believers slaves? Of course. We are all both at the same time. But in our conversations and interactions with others, we must maintain the disposition that Paul models for us. How do we maintain this disposition and attitude like Paul? Well, we do what Paul did. He followed Jesus' example. Paul's owner, Paul's master, himself became a slave. 
In doing so, he achieved for us both peace and grace, essential themes in Paul's greeting, upon which he will flesh out throughout the rest of this letter. So I would encourage you as you go through this week in every interaction you have. Again, did Paul do this all the time? No. Sometimes he needed to say, hey, I'm an apostle. I have authority from God. I have apostolic credentials and you need to take seriously what I'm saying. But when he's dealing with division where there should be unity, he models for us an approach by calling himself a slave and addressing his audience as saints. So I'm going to try this this week. Uh, even at work. You know, is this something that Paul turned on and off for church? Uh-uh, I don't think so. I don't think Paul ever turned it off. But just imagine how relationships and communication might be changed if you took this approach. If you remembered that you are a slave to Christ, that your will is wholly surrendered to him. And that what you have to offer the world is only through God's sovereign gifting and only for the purpose of building his body here on earth. And if you identified your audience as a saint, as someone who's been set apart, as someone who's been called for a purpose. So I encourage you, look for opportunities this week to have the same disposition that Paul does when he addresses uh, these believers in Philippi. Treat people as from a slave to a saint. And what do you do when you're dealing with people who aren't saints? Should it be any different? No. No, it shouldn't. So would you pray with me? Uh, Father, we are uh, just grateful that you have given us your grace, that you have achieved for us peace, reconciliation to you and with one another. And the very idea that we could be reconciled to you but not to one another is, is so far from anything we read in this text or really any other text in your word that... Uh, that I would ask that you would please uh, convict us quickly and, and bring those relationships to resolution and to reconciliation um, for the simple fact that you have reconciled us to yourselves and that in you, Lord, we have true unity. We can agree to disagree about a lot of other things and about those things. Give us patience. Uh, help us to treat each other with grace and, and, and mercy and kindness and gentleness um, so that those uh, disagreements or on, on matters of opinion don't divide. You have united us in your son. Lord, let us experience that unity in increasingly powerful ways. Uh, because as... Uh, as you'll, you'll go on to say that this, this unity within the church is a testimony to those outside of the church, uh, that what we're doing in here is real and true. Lord, give us your grace as we fail in this, 
and give us opportunities to practice this week, Lord. We are we are indeed slaves, and and our fellow believers are indeed saints. And I pray that you would give us uh, chance after chance this week to interact with that disposition, with that attitude. In Jesus' name, amen.